I'm really excited about our time in God's Word this morning. If you grab your Bibles with me and, and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 14, we're going to finish chapter 14 today. Uh, and man, I'm just thankful for all that God's been doing in it. Many of you have pulled me aside and said, man, I'm just really thankful for the, the Word uh, and the work of the Lord in chapter 14 and the conviction and the growth that it's brought. Um, praise God, just thrilled. In chapter 13, we read about how Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He unveiled that Judas Iscariot would betray him. He told his disciples that he was leaving them soon. And Peter would deny him three times. So a lot of bad news, a lot of struggle, a lot of things hard for the disciples to process. And so this created unrest in the 11 faithful disciples that remained. And so what we have in chapter 14 is Jesus focusing on bringing words of assurance and encouragement to the disciples to embolden them for the season of ministry to come. Some of the highlights that we've seen in chapter 14, verse 1 and 2, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He went on to say, In my Father's house are many rooms, that he goes to prepare a place for his people and will come again to take us to himself. In verse 6, Jesus uh, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through me. The fact that we even have a way is good news, church. It's good news. Praise God that Jesus has done that work on our behalf to make a way. Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, I will do this, that the Father would be glorified in the Son. And the, the power of, uh, of God, the joy that it is to walk and live according to His will. And in 15, last week, we looked at, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Um, and so, to conclude chapter 14, I'm excited for what uh, we see today. And, and as excited as I am to get into chapter 15, one of my favorite chapters of this gospel, uh, and really in scripture, um, I'm very excited for what we'll begin next week. But man, I'm thankful for Jesus' words here in the conclusion of chapter 14, as he's going to bring a great encouragement to the disciples, continue to embolden them, continue to remind them who they are, who they are in him, and specifically speak of the good gifts that we have in God. That, that's really the focus this morning, is to highlight and see these good gifts that we have in God when restored to Him through the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, I pray that this is an encouragement to you this morning, that you would be emboldened, encouraged, and understand better the many good gifts we have in God. So with that, look with me at verse 16. We're going to work on 16 through 20 and then uh, close it up with 25 through 31 um, today. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will, give me, he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Here Jesus is highlighting the very good gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit being equal and eternal In the Godhead, equal and eternal alongside the Father and the Son, the person of the Holy Spirit is God, is to be worshipped and honored. The word Jesus uses here for the Holy Spirit is uh, parakletos, which means one who comes alongside. 
That's the word there for helper. One who comes alongside. And one of the greatest gifts in life that we can have is when someone simply comes alongside us, is it not? Better than a note or a card or even a cool gift, the love of someone to spend their time to come alongside you and help you, to comfort you and console you is a great gift. Can we just pause and consider the massive blessing that it is that the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, comes alongside us in this life to bless us and walk with us along the way. Before I get into the work of the Holy Spirit and what He will do in the believers after Jesus has left and gone to be at the Father's side, which is where we're going to focus today, I want to just give you a quick moment a peek of the beautiful vastness of the person of the Holy Spirit. I want to do this today because in the coming weeks, in chapter 15, 16, 17, we're going to continue to hear Jesus speak of the work of the Holy Spirit in different facets. So I want to just give us a quick overview this morning. A few things. Number one, the Holy Spirit is the giver of new life. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the Bible says in Ephesians 4.18, that all unregenerate people, people who are not saved, do not believe in God for salvation, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Okay? Therefore, we are dependent on the critical work of regeneration of the Holy Spirit if we are to have spiritual life. The Spirit must give us a new heart. In our sin, enslaved in sin, we have a heart of stone. We need a heart of flesh. This is spoken of clearly in Ezekiel 36, 26-27, when God says, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules." If you love me, you will obey my commandments. That's not possible without regeneration, without the Holy Spirit. We looked at that last, last week. The pig will continue to be a pig. Needs to be transformed supernaturally into a man via the illustration last week. That's regeneration. That's what we're talking about here. The Holy Spirit gives us new life. As Jesus spoke of it in chapter 3, he called it to Nicodemus, new birth. We must be born again. It's a work we cannot do of ourselves. You didn't birth yourself the first time you're not birthing yourself in spiritual birth either it must be done to you you must be born that's the work of the holy spirit look at john 3 5 jesus answered truly truly i say to you unless one is born of water in the spirit he cannot enter the kingdom of god romans 8 and 9 says it so clearly anyone who does not have the spirit does not have the spirit of christ does not belong to him now don't miss this. Anyone who is saved has been given spiritual life by the work of regeneration and new birth by the Holy Spirit. Without this work, without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, no one belongs to God. No one believes in God. What this means, the Holy Spirit has been on the scene and at work in this way since the beginning of time throughout the Old Testament and throughout the beginnings of the New Testament. The very disciples standing in front of Jesus, the eleven who have remained, who believe in Jesus, given their lives to Him, the Holy Spirit 
has worked in their life. Otherwise, they would not believe Him, would not trust Him, would not endure, if not for the work of regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Let me define indwelling real quick. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the action by which God takes up permanent residence in the body of an elect person at regeneration. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in us. Reformed Baptist theologian and historian Tom Nettles speaks to this very well and helps us process what we see here. Quick note, Dr. Nettles was actually with us at our church, the conference we helped host last year. Um, Did a phenomenal job, was with us for a few days teaching. It was a great time. To this point that we're considering in this text, Nettles says, all of those prior to the new covenant being formally established, which Jesus will do, had the persevering faith leading to eternal life, could not have been void of the Spirit of God. The Old Testament believers, the New Testament believers, before the, the, resu- before the cross and the resurrection, could not have had saving faith without the Spirit of God. Both faith and faithfulness are the fruit of the Spirit's operations, and both of these existed in those Old Testament people of faith that are named in Hebrews 11, If these on the roll call of faith did not have the Spirit, they would have no principle in them to oppose the dark desires of the flesh. They would have given over to those desires as the reprobate do. Thus, they would not have inherited the kingdom of God. All this is to say, if a sinner is to have saving faith, it it must be by the regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit. Okay? I'm going to come back to why that emphasis is so important in a moment. First, let's look at a couple other ways the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit also is the sealer of our salvation. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee the faith, the living hope you have in Christ that endures you through hard seasons is the Spirit at work in you, the guarantee that you are saved. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. He seals us, endures us to the end. A beautiful, very comforting work of the Holy Spirit, the guaranteed and sealer of our salvation. Is it up to you? Can you lose your salvation? Praise God, that's not biblically true. The Lord has secured us. We are sealed in the Holy Spirit. Third, the Holy Spirit is also the revealer of truth. We'll see in our text today in verse 17 and 26. Let's look at those real quick. In verse 17, Jesus refers to him as the spirit of truth. In verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Later, Jesus will tell his disciples in John 16, two chapters from now, verse 13, 
that the Spirit of truth will guide you into all truth. In this, the Holy Spirit's critical work is revealing to our minds the whole counsel of God as it relates to worship, doctrine, Christian living, according to the Word. He is the ultimate guide, going before, leading the way, removing obstructions, opening the understanding, making all things plain and clear. This is a beautiful and wonderful gift that the Spirit reveals to us truth. Okay? Next, the Holy Spirit is also the producer of fruit. The one who works the sanctification and character change that is harvesting godly fruit in our lives. You don't, as a branch, grow fruit. You don't, you don't work to become more patient, more loving, more kind. That is the fruit of the Spirit within you. He is the producer of the fruit. What is the fruit of the Spirit as we read in Galatians 5.22? It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are not works of our flesh, which is incapable of producing such fruit, but the products of the Spirit's presence and work in our lives. While there are many wonderful works the Holy Spirit does, this is a great gift to us to change us from within, to produce a different character. This is why when someone is saved and is maturing in salvation, you actually can see the changes in them. The rotten person, disgusting person they were in their sin, you run into them and seasons later, years later, go, who are you? Fruit of the Spirit at work in a person's life. The fruit of the Spirit, maturing your marriage, giving you a new look at how to raise your kids or grandkids, a new patience with coworkers or rotten people as you engage them. Fruit of the Spirit at work in your life. And then finally, for an overview, again, there's many, many ways the Spirit's at work, but a few to highlight. The Holy Spirit is also the convictor of sin. The Holy Spirit brings about conviction of sin so that we see it, so that we can repent of it. This is a huge way the Holy Spirit's walk in truth. How, how the Holy Spirit helps us walk in truth is to see our sin so we can confess that it's sin and then turn from it. Constantly identifying sin, turning from it, the Spirit's work is to bring to mind the lie, the conviction, to see the temptation, to call it for what it is. That is a lie. That is sin. I'm going to call it what it is. I'm not going to lean in and partake or participate. I'm going to turn from it and honor God. Now, before we move on to the other gifts, let me highlight part of the context of this verse that we must rightly see this morning. Read it with me again because it can lend itself to cause us to believe something that is misguided if we don't understand it within the whole of Scripture. Look at verse 14 and 26 with me. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. This can sound like the Spirit, this Helper, is not on the scene. Jesus has to go still ask the Father so that the Holy Spirit can come and do His work. Okay? Look at how that also seems to build in 26. 
the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Church, Jesus is not saying the Holy Spirit is still yet to come as if he has not been doing his work of indwelling and persevering and regeneration all along the way. Rather, these passages speak to the specific realities that will take place in the new covenant. Remember, Jesus is speaking to the eleven. He's about to go to the cross. They're freaking out a little bit. They're, gonna, they're about to freak out a little more when they watch their master arrested, beaten, skin stripped from his body, hung on the cross. He's emboldening them. And what does he say again and again and again in the text that we're reading? I'm telling you this now, so when it happens, you will remember what I've said and your faith will be emboldened and you will keep moving. So what he's speaking of here, of this coming work of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus will die, resurrect, and then ascend, sending the Holy Spirit to begin a new covenant work in the establishment of the new covenant in the people of the church and in the uh, apostolic era that is to come. So what is he going to do? Establish the New Testament church. Advance the Spirit's work in gifting, teaching, and sanctification in the now established New Testament, New Covenant Church, and the unique giving of miraculous but temporary gifts during the apostolic period. The Holy Spirit is the one who empowered the writing of the Old Testament scriptures, but notice that came to an end. So in, in the application of the work of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we see different seasons of emphasis. So just because the Holy Spirit did the work of bringing about the writing of the, New, of the Old Testament and that that came to an end, and then is about now to get to work through the apostles in the writing of the New Testament, the fact that there's some start and some stop and some start and some phases and some different applications doesn't mean the Holy Spirit hasn't been on the scene. But we wrongly think, or can wrongly think, and even read these passages to think, the Holy Spirit didn't show up until Jesus had ascended. Until Pentecost. That was the arrival of the Holy Spirit. That's a wrong way to think about the work of the Holy Spirit. Even in Jesus' language here, it's not like, hey, I'm about to introduce you to someone who hasn't been at work. That's not the case. We've got to understand all the Scripture together. The disciples are given hearts to believe, and now Jesus is saying the Spirit will come to do a specific work in the season to come. We now, looking back, know these things included the very special miracle working of the apostolic era, that is now ended, and also the rest of the new covenant work the Holy Spirit is still doing in the life of the church that we find ourselves in today. So we have to be very careful to not wrongly think of the, of the Holy Spirit as, as having waited to begin to be unleashed at Pentecost, and that that's what this is pointing towards. That, that's a misunderstanding. One more clarity before we move on from the gift of the Holy Spirit here. Look at verse 17 with me. Jesus says in verse 17, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him 
nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Here, Jesus confirms the Holy Spirit is already with true believers and that he will be in them moving forward. In other words, he will not leave, but also notice who cannot receive the Holy Spirit or be blessed by him, the world, the non-elect. They do not receive the amazing gift of the Holy Spirit. It is only for those whom God chooses to save. Very important clarity we see there. Church, may we never play light with the beautiful gift of the indwelling and the work of the Holy Spirit. But we may think rightly about how the scriptures line out what that work is and how it's at work in us. Now, moving forward, because we have a lot of good gifts to cover this morning, look with me at verse 18, and let's see the next good gift God gives his redeemed people, the gift of adoption. Jesus says next in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Two things we see here. The metaphor of the disciples being without their leader for a time is like a child without a parent. And he's saying, I will not leave you in this state. I'm going, but I'm going to come again to you. Okay? I know I'm parting. There's a purpose and a reason for that. I will come again. You will not be left in that place. So that's assurance number one. Two is the huge reality that Jesus, in his going to the cross, rising and ascension, in his work, makes possible that we who were once separated from God in our sin, alienated, children of wrath, as Ephesians 2 defines us, have been adopted and made forever a part of his eternal family. This is truly good news. We have seen this all along the way in the Gospel of John. For example, in chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, look there with me briefly. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, new birth, spiritual birth, not of the will of the flesh, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God gives new birth. His sovereign choosing and regeneration is our new birth. And because of our new birth, we are adopted. That's beautiful, beautiful truth. Look at Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. It is a good gift to be an orphan, for an orphan to be adopted by a loving family. To redeem those who are under the law, it says in verse 5 there in Galatians 4. To redeem means to obtain or to set free by paying a price. 
What is the price that God paid for our liberation, for our adoption? In the previous chapter of Galatians, Galatians 3, verse 13, we hear the answer. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. People pay a lot of money today to go through years of waiting and pay a high price to adopt a child privately. The, the price Jesus paid for us, church, is infinite. I pray you see today the depth of God's love for you that we've already sung about in your adoption and the price He paid. If you are saved by the blood of Jesus, you are adopted by God at a high price into His family. If you ever in a moment or a season where you're feeling unimportant, unloved, unwanted, as a Christian, you should always be able to overcome the, the feelings you have in that temporary place with the wild reality that in Christ you have been chosen and that you see the extent of the payment made for you to be a forever part of His beloved family. You are not unimportant, unloved, unwanted. See what God has done to make you His. This also highlights the legal realities that God had to deal with to adopt us. His own perfect justice and law demanded that we be punished and excluded from His presence for our sins. Righteousness was required. Punishment demanded. God had to satisfy His justice and His law in order to adopt sinners into His family. This He did by the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. Praise God. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, 4 and 5. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Understand today, adoption was never God's plan B. He predestined us for adoption, it says here in Ephesians 1, before the creation of the world. So that means plan A was creation, fall, redemption, adoption. So that the full range of God's glory and mercy and power could be shown in and by His adopted children. Adoption was not second best in God's economy for us. It was God's perfect plan from the beginning. In our lives, there is something uniquely precious about having children by birth. Also God's design. And that's a good plan. 
There's also something different, but also uniquely precious about adopting children. Each has its own uniqueness. A parent's choice to adopt children may be sequentially second in your hopes and plans, but it does not have to be secondary. It can be as precious and as significant as having a child by birth. Amen? The world wants to downgrade the importance or the validity of one's familyness if, come to find out, they are adopted. But in the economy of God, this is simply not the case. We are 100% His. Nothing less important or secondary about us. Amen? See that good gift this morning. Speak it into each other, into your, your marriages, your kids, your grandkids, your neighbors, coworkers, yourself. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. If they only knew the fullness of what that really meant. Let's look at the third good gift that God gives us. Massive life in Christ. Verse 19 and 20. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live. You also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Disciples still didn't understand the fullness of his going away, that he died, that he would die and rise again, that he will ascend to the Father's side, return again for his people to usher them, usher us into a new creation. So when he says, because I live, you will live also, on the surface, that's like, well, duh. Yeah, you're living. Great. We're living. Okay. What do you mean? But to understand, because he lives after the crucifixion is phenomenal. is awesome. And again, he's speaking these to them now so that when it happens, within the next 40, 72 hours, because he lives, we will live. The emboldening he's doing is going to have a delayed effect in these guys. But it's going to be awesome. This is huge news. And the very basis of our hope today, church, in all things. Consider what Paul says in Colossians 1. Once you were alienated from God, this is verse 21 and 22, and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, free from accusation. Skip down to verse 26. The mystery that has been kept hidden for the ages and generations is now disclosed to the saints. 
to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Our lives are secured in Christ. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What do you say to the disciples in here? Because I live, you also will live. Christ lives in me. Paul gets this. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Church, I am so thankful my hope is not in myself or in my circumstances. Oh, how miserable my life is when I put my hope in myself, in mankind, in the happenings of this life. It is so frail. It is so full of sin. Church, our hope is in Christ. Our life in Christ is such a beautiful gift of immeasurable portions. So Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm going. But I will be more present than you ever even understand right now. You will know and understand when that day comes. Trust me, it will be amazing. Consider some of the first words we read in John's Gospel 60 sermons ago. John chapter 1, verse 16. From the fullness of His grace, we have all received one blessing after another. Received. That means you're a possessor of it. Dump truck loads of blessings that you can't even name them all. Back to that Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Church, we are blessed because we have life in Christ. In Christ. What a good gift it is to be in Christ. And as I've said before, I'll warn you again, do not ever let it become Christ and you. Like He's my buddy. We were a great team, and sometimes I've got the ball and I'm doing good, and sometimes I'm doing poor and I've got to give him the ball. That is a wrong view of what it means to be in Christ. That is a religious view. Christ in you is your hope for glory. Now, Jesus is not done emboldening under their feet. Look with me at verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Some of you haven't been reading ahead and you're going, oh, this verse is here? Yes. It's here. I'm with you. Excited. 
peace, Jesus says, I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Do you remember how he started this chapter? Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And he's emboldening, he's firming up these foundations of truths under their feet, just as he's doing for us, the church today, as you encounter hardship and loss and, and persecution, and the world wants to come at us, they want to hate on us, they want to tear us down. We endure our hopes in the Lord. Peace, the good gift of true and lasting peace. Consider for a moment with me the dictionary definition of peace is untroubled, without troubles. Tranquil, content. Can you picture it? The air conditioning is working right. Do you hear it? The kids aren't screaming. Get a nice ice cold drink. You're relaxed. The phone's not ringing. No troubles. Now be honest with yourself for a moment. How often do we chase that moment? Put our hope, our longings in our day for that moment? But true and lasting peace is different than the world's peace. True peace is not found in the absence of conflict or in good feelings. Our modern culture's idea of peace is the absence of conflict or war. We think that peace is emotional calmness. The peace that many of us find ourselves hoping in, like the scene I described, is really a circumstantial peace. When the circumstances are working right, then peace. When they are getting along, peace. When the bills are paid, peace. When he apologizes to me, Peace. When the boss leaves me alone, peace. But you've got to see that that is circumstantial peace. And when is that peace interrupted, lost, gone? The moment your circumstances change. It takes one ring of the phone, one click of the electricity, one blah, 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 one mom. One whatever. This is not the kind of peace Jesus brings. Praise God. It's not lasting peace. The Jews would often greet themselves Mashalonka. That's, that's my very Californian way of saying that. It's a common Hebrew greeting 
That basically is, means, how is your shalom? How is your peace? We have our own trimmed down version of it where we say, how are you? We'll say it to a complete stranger. We don't really expect that guy to reply. How are you? And then you keep walking. And he's like, well, you just asked me. Do you want to know? I realize I do that all the time, and I'm frustrated over it. I just asked the guy how he is, and I turned my face away and kept walking. How rude am I? How are you? I really don't care. I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> how is your shalom? How is your peace? What do we often say right then? One word. We all do it. Fine. I'm fine. You, you could be in a living hell. You'll still say, oh, I'm fine. <laughs> right? Liars. <laughs> but the Hebrew understanding of peace was, was deeper. It was wider than how are you, I'm fine. They're really saying, how is your peace? How is your shalom? They actually are meaning something by this question, something that was important. Shalom is not a circumstantial peace. It is a holistic peace, a, a harmony at their core. Despite your circumstances, The only way to have this kind of true peace is Jesus. Because no external or self-made modification can bring that kind of core peace. Everything else is circumstantial adjustments. It's why even church or the Bible or your faith can't be just another circumstantial adjustment. And for many of you, for many years, that's the way you've treated your faith. And then so when that gets upset, you're like, I want my money back. I mean, you didn't pay for it in the beginning, but you know what I mean. So there is a peace that Jesus gives that's not like the world gives it, that we must know, and it's in him. Consider how we have it. Isaiah chapter 53, very famous depiction of the death, the brutal death of Jesus in our place. He, speaking of Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His wounds, we are healed so there is a healing, there is a peace that is at our core. I mean, what Jesus did in dying in our place had very little to do with circumstantial wars and oppression. No, no, no. All that's going to continue. We're in a lost world. Until glory, that stuff's going to continue in rage. By his wounds, we are healed. We are given that peace. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have possessors of peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest peace we could ever know is peace with God. The, the greatest problem we have in our sin is separation from God. And Jesus brings us peace. In Isaiah 9, 6, Jesus very famously is referred to as the Prince of Peace. As I've told you before, the Sar Shalom. Hebrew word for Prince of Peace is Sar Shalom. Sar, the one in charge, the captain, the general, the lord, the chief. It's where Caesar gets Caesar's name. Sar, the one in charge, the captain, the general of Shalom. Rest, but not just exterior rest, complete interior wholeness. Shalom. Peace. Do you need to learn how to meditate better to have shalom? Below, no. Eastern mysticism, no. You need Jesus. Jesus is the Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace, the Captain of Rest, the Chief of Completeness, the Lord of Wholeness. I pray that you would know Him, trust Him, and experience His peace despite your circumstances. David knew this peace. How do I know? Because he said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for your rod and staff comfort me. His circumstances are terrible. The valley of the shadow of death has never in the history of man been a positive definition of anything. Right? I pray you know him and trust him with your life and know his peace. Listen to how Jesus wraps up this proclamation of the good gifts of God and all that he has said here in chapter 14. To build confidence for the disciples for how they are in Christ and what they will do what he will do in and through them in the coming season. Verse 28, You heard me say to you, I am going away. I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Because I'm going to the Father. The Father is greater than I. Now Jesus knows that they love him, that they believe in him. He knows their heart. He knows they're his elect. He knows that they have been given saving faith. So he's not questioning their love, but more pointing out the outplay of their love. Why? Because they are distracted in this moment about their circumstances. About their pending loss of Jesus parting from them. The hardship that they've been considering They're missing the opportunity to celebrate the fact that Jesus is going to be with the Father to make a place for them and victoriously come back and get them. 
If you got that, you'd be dancing right now, not tripping out. Look at verse 29. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. He wants them to believe. But you might say, but they already do believe, right? That's what we've been saying. That's what we believe is the testimony. Yes, they do believe in a saving way. But there is a deepening and a maturing of their Christian belief that is good and still needed. Church, if you really understand it, it's the very thing that God's doing in every one of us as we study the Gospel of John. The very purpose of the Gospel of John is that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, Messiah, and by believing we may have life in Him. For those of us who already have life in Him, there's an emboldening of our belief, of our trust in Him, of our faith in Him, is it not? It's the very work that's happening in us still today. Surely, as he said these things, they're about to happen, and then they're going to recall them. Their belief is going to be emboldened. And that happened. Peter is still yet to deny Jesus three times. Not say, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not with him. He goes so far to say, I don't even know that guy. That's the depth of his lie. The avoidance of persecution to the degree. But post-resurrection and the work of the Holy Spirit in them in the coming season, these guys move from being cowards to being soldiers committed to the nth degree. They all but one die for their faith. That is so far from, I don't even know the guy. I don't want you to beat me around like I'm watching you do with him. They get to a place where they're like, I believe in Jesus. Kill me. Which is what they all did. They all died. So that belief, that emboldening, that maturing church is, is going to happen in the disciples. It is happening in us as we lean in and trust in God as we learn these things. Praise God. Now, finally, verse 30 and 31, I will no longer talk much with you Time for talking is coming to an end. What does he say next? For the ruler of this world is coming. And by the way, he has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me. So that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise. Let us go from here. I don't know why. I get choked up every time I read those last words. Because it's late on Thursday night. And as the talking slows down, the teaching, the last encouragements are finishing, Jesus is getting ready to go to work. This is the time for talking is coming to an end. It's time that I do what I came to do. And by the way, the rule of this world, Satan is coming. And the work of sin and the evil will climax at the slaughter of the spotless lamb of Jesus as he's put on false trial and then murdered. But I love that Jesus says here, this is so good for us too. He has no claim on me. 
Let's flush this out for a quick moment. Praise God that Satan is not unleashed and out of control. He is under the sovereign authority of God Almighty. All things are under God's rule and control. Nothing happens without His direction or permission. Providentially, He is a God who works not just some things, but all things to the counsel of His holy will. God purpose in all inclus- is all-inclusive and never thwarted. He's never surprised, never thwarted, never has to duck, never has to regroup. God is supreme, who answers to no one. Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can say his hand or say to him, what have you done? What we must understand is Satan is not a formidable foe of God. God and Satan are not even close to being on the same playing field. Engaged in some cosmic battle of battles. That is a a storyline misconstrued from the world's rhetoric. Modern pictures displaying Satan and Jesus arm wrestling. Nonsense. Unbiblical. Colossians 1.16, For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. In Job, we we read about Satan not only did what God allowed, that Satan only did what God allowed him to do to Job, is what I meant to say there. Satan is not omniscient. Nowhere in scriptures does it give Satan the power to read minds or know anything exhaustively. Satan is on a leash. God limits how far or what Satan can do to Job. We see the sovereignty of God in this. Also that nothing comes to us without the express permission of God. We have no need to fear Satan or his demonic host. They are under the supreme authority of God. God promised he would defeat Satan in Genesis 3.15. On the cross, Jesus conquered sin and death on behalf of the redeemed people of God. At the end of time, The last days, he will bring an end to all things of sin and death and usher in the new creation. While you and I are still at war with our flesh, the temptation of sin, the cosmic powers of darkness, at the same time of being at war with those things, we are secured in the victory of our bloody champion. So we need fear no one but God. God is sovereign, Satan is not. So when Jesus says he has no claim on me, even though by God's will, the most unjust, 
unfathomable thing in all human history is about to happen. He has no claim on me. Amen? Finally, Jesus says, I do as the Father commands me. And I say, praise God that Jesus did what he came to do. The table is set. The disciples have been emboldened. I am super stoked for next week's beginning into chapter 15. Let's stand this morning and pray and praise God as we close. Father God, we thank you for the good gifts you've given us. For the amazing ways in which you have worked in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the grace that you've shown us when we do not deserve it. Lord, let any day that any of us who are still yet to truly trust you to lay down our lives, to lay down the lordship of our own lives and trust our lives to you, I pray that today would be that day. That we would not allow ourselves to play light with these things. And for those who do believe, who have trusted you, that these words of Christ our Lord in the closing verses of chapter 14 would be of a great encouragement to us. The beautiful, wonderful work and gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The amazing gift that it is to be adopted children of God. To be given the enduring and true peace of God. To have life in Christ. And to know that you are at work in all these things sovereignly. That your good news will change lives ongoingly. You are to be praised. You are to be hallowed and hailed. And we worship you this morning. We sing in joy and celebration. Your people to our living God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.